Actually, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open with me to Ephesians chapter 4 in our series. Uh, we've made it all the way till this message, and finally we find ourselves to Ephesians chapter 4. We've been going through the DNA, or the core of the local church, and uh, I've enjoyed doing this series with you. We're really coming close to the end of this series, and I look forward to beginning a new one here soon with you on the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. But we're in Ephesians chapter 4. And actually, we just read, as we've been memorizing, verses 1 through 15. That's what we just read and quoted together. And we're going to pick up our reading then in verse 16. Verse 16, as we already just said together, verses 1 through 15. Let's begin our reading in verse 16. It says, From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their hearts, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness and greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him, and the truth is in Jesus Christ, that you put off concerning the former conversation the old man, uh, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, put away lying, and speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one and of another. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the things which are good, that he may have to give to them that need. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed in the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Ephesians chapter 4 is a passage written to the church to give instruction to the church. I would like to focus our attention this morning on the section of that chapter that begins in verse 25. Verse 25 says, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Let me explain to you how I arrive here. It's not uncommon for people to talk about the great potential of a particular local church. I don't think that they do so out of any sense of flattery or pride as it comes from the inside, but simply in the recognition that God in His goodness has built a church in their local community. And as that church has studied the Scriptures, they have hopefully come to some scriptural conclusions that can give to them some wonderful potential. We have been encouraged to be ready to move with the effectiveness of a body which is controlled by its head. We learned that even in this series, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been encouraged to live with the distinctiveness of a bride that is awaiting the arrival of her bridegroom. We learned about that even in this series and the past series. We have been encouraged to be on our feet and ready to march with all aggressiveness as an army of the Lord. We sang about that this evening. All of the potential that is part of is good, and it's good, and it's godly. It's a godly church. It's a God-given potential. None of us have dreamt of this on our own. 
dragged it in or produced it. All potential, all good potential is God-given potential. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 reminds us that God has sovereignly chosen to give gifts to his church. In fact, this even passage, Ephesians chapter 4, outlines that for us. In chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, it reminds us that there are those who plant and those who water, but only God can give the increase. We understand that we have been given a part to play, we have responsibilities to fill, and yet we acknowledge that any potential that we may have as a ministry, as a local church, is only and always God-given potential. I bring that to your attention because, while that's great, a lot of churches could say the same thing. And church history is littered with examples of churches that eventually amounted to very little despite the fact that they were marked at one point by great potential, potentially even significant giftedness, a clear delineation of purpose, and zealous desires to do their best. Church history is marked by the corpses of churches that are now since closed that at one point had great potential, but something happened. The fact is that this is true in biblical history. It is also true in our 21st century history. And that should cause us to have some flashing lights go off in our heads and our minds. Be warned. As you may know, I grew up in New England. From time to time, we've had friends that visit us from New England. And I always, when I get a chance to go to homes that are from New England, I'm always, I think it's remarkable that most New England homes have at least one or two pictures of lighthouses in them. Because if there is something that is worth seeing in New England, it is certainly the number, the numerous lighthouses that are there. And there are famous ones at that that dot the coastlines. And when I revisit those spots as an adult, I love to go back to them and remember all the times that we as a family have gone to those lighthouses. But the reality is when lighthouses are turned on and the lights flash, the lighthouses are not meant to be welcoming lights. They are meant to be warning lights. That's what they're there for. It is to this issue of warning that I find myself drawing your attention this evening, as if to turn on the lighthouse for a moment. And I've entitled the message, How to Destroy a Church's Potential. I just want to be a lighthouse for a moment from Scripture. There are certain things that we need to carefully avoid. The light shines out to mark their spots so that we may maneuver around them with God's help. But if we as a church fail to look at where these lighthouses are shining us and we collide with those rocks, make no mistake about it, this place will sooner or later be classed along with the many other churches who at one point had great potential but are now shipwrecked. And I hope nobody thinks that that can't happen here. The degree to which we think that can't happen is the most dangerous position of all. Christ's words to the church in Thyatira are very important. When he says in Revelation 2 verse 19, I know your works and charity and service and faith and your patience and your works, and that the last to be more than the first. That's, that's a great start. You've, you've done a wonderful thing. That's a great start. But do you notice the verse that follows that in verse 20 of Revelation 2? Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. On the case of the church of Thyatira, it was the presence of an individual who was leading the church into immorality, and the church's collective effectiveness was hampered as a result of its lack of purity. But we're not in Revelation 2. 
Our attention now comes to Ephesians 4. And Ephesians 4 lists some warnings. Now, this list is clearly not exhaustive. There are other things that could contribute to the downfall of a local church. But to the degree that these things are tolerated, our effectiveness will be diminished. And none of these things, I would imagine, will come as a surprise to you. These things ought to instead cause us to have some reflection. This message is not motivated by a reflection of the circumstances in our church and determining that there are rocks amongst us that we need to avoid, but rather because we've been in Ephesians chapter 4 for an entire year memorizing this passage, and it would be wise for us to look further at what exactly the author, Paul, is trying to communicate. And Paul is really and truly in this chapter giving us some lighthouse lights to look out for. Look out if you don't want this place selling carpets within the decade, is what he's saying. Destroy these pitfalls, or these pitfalls will destroy your church. And my plan, as always, is to stay in one passage and exposit from it that one, the one truths that are there. What are the truths that we find in Ephesians chapter 4? Warning number one, don't tolerate untruthful speech. The potential of any church will be stopped by the toleration of untruthful speech. Notice again verse 25, Wherefore, put away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. And the negative element of this is clear, and the positive element is clear as well. Negatively, put away lying, get rid of that, and positively, speak truth every man to his neighbor. The best way to kill a lie is by telling the truth. And to determine to be truth-tellers. Children need to form it in their character. We teach that to them. Teenagers need to work hard to ensure it is a part of their very lives and their lifestyles. Husband and wives ought to be truth-tellers to one another. And churches are held together by a commitment to truth. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us (coughs) that When we take the collective armor in the struggle for spiritual warfare, the very center of that armor is the belt of truth. Stand firm, Ephesians 6, verse 14. Therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, lay aside the belt of truth, and all of your armor will be flapping in the wind. Right? Truth demands deliberate effort. We never had to teach our kids how to tell lies, but we did need to teach our kids how to tell truths, and this is true for churches as well. Lies come naturally. Truth comes supernaturally. It is not normal to tell the truth. It is abnormal, and that is why in the work of redemption, the Lord Jesus turns people the right way round. And when he turns them the right way round, an upside-down world, what once looked upside-down is right-side-up, if you will. There is nowhere, perhaps, that this danger is more obvious within a church than within the realm of rumor. People who fuel and feed upon rumors are small and suspicious people, and there are many of them. All of us love a good rumor. People magazines and other kinds of magazines are filled with salacious rumor, and they sell their magazines because we love good rumors. doesn't matter if it can be substantiated. As long as it's a good story, we'll listen. 
Do you know that Abraham Lincoln's coffin was opened twice after he died because of rumors? Did you know that? The first time it was opened was in 1887, which was 22 years after his assassination. Why did they open Abraham Lincoln's coffin 22 years later? They did it because of a rumor which had swept the country that Lincoln was not in his coffin and that he had never been in his coffin and he may never have even died. That was the conjecture. Somehow or other, people began to believe that rumor, so much so that they dug up the coffin, opened it up to prove he was still there. It happened again. Fourteen years later, the same rumor swept the country, and once again, they had to dig up the coffin, all because of a simple conjecture. It's pretty weird. Rumor is a really monstrous giant capable of prying open more coffins and revealing more skeletons unnecessarily than any other thing. A passing word, an unkind statement, an unguarded notion, a less than truthful assertion, and suddenly the giant roams through the graveyards of our past, digging up things within the church. We can say from the authority of Ephesians chapter 4 this evening, want to ruin the potential of this church? Tolerate untruthful speech. And nowhere will this be more apparent than the cultivation, communication of, and carrying out those juicy little rumors. You go to bed with the giant of rumor, and it will roll over on you at night. Rumor and untruths will destroy a church. And you destroy these pitfalls, or these pitfalls will destroy these ch- this church. Wrongful silences, unfounded stories, deliberate lies, and the like cause trouble, friction, disunity, and sadness. You don't need me to tell you that. Frankly, you know that. Some of your families have been marred by rumor and untruths. Brothers call brothers, or no longer call brothers, because potential untruths have been shared. Sisters can no longer talk to sisters. Gatherings are less than they once were, all because of untruths that have been shared, whether in your immediate family or, sadly, even within the church family. It's no wonder that Paul would say, we are members one of another. Just as essential as it is in your physical body to communicate correctly with itself, even so it is essential within the family body of God that the body of God communicate truthfully with itself. That's what he's trying to say. If you stub your toe or break your toe and your brain does not process that correctly and tells your body is totally fine, nothing's wrong, there's going to be a bigger problem later because your brain is not telling the right truth to your body. Even so, we are members one of another. If you cannot speak truth with your member, that cultivation of an untruth will create all kinds of problems. Warning number one, don't tolerate untruth. Warning number two, don't tolerate uncontrolled anger. Paul continues to flash out warning lights in this text. And we'll find another one in verse 26 when he says, Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Now Paul comes back to that expression in verse 31. When he says in verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. 
Obviously, if he had to repeat it, this was a problem in Ephesus. This was a great church, but Paul was not writing stuff that they didn't need to hear. And so this is a problem. And he deals with it. He says there's wrath. What is wrath? Well, the word Paul uses here is an expressive of a tumultuous outburst. It's sometimes translated as rage. It's derived from a word meaning to boil. It's used to describe the people in the synagogue in Nazareth whose rage at Jesus drove them to drive him out onto a cliff where they wanted to push him off. That's the kind of word that's being communicated. It's the same word used of the mob in Ephesus that led the riot against the Christian in Acts 19. This is the word, this outburst. It's an expressive of a tumultuous outburst. That's wrath. What about anger? Well, the word is used in verse 26 and verse 31. It's used of Jesus' righteous anger, that same word is, in Mark 3. It's used of God's wrath, which is settled hatred and opposition to all sin. With reference to human anger, though, wrath and anger are largely synonymous in the pages of the New Testament. If there is any nuance to be found, wrath is the sudden outburst of a temper, whereas anger refers to a more settled anger attitude, often for the purpose of revenge. He says, put that away. He says, put away clamor. What's clamor? It refers to loud, angry words where people are screaming at each other. It includes cursing and even calling someone abusive names. That's clamor. Now, there is still a place for righteous anger. We see a reminder of that in verse 26 when he says, be angry and sin not. Or there is a place, rather, where you can be angry and not sin. Of course, there is a place for righteous anger. But let's be honest. If we were to do an accounting of all so-called righteous anger, and I think we would discover that most of what we think is righteous is actually unrighteous. So if your anger is that way, what do you do? Verse 26, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Don't even give a foothold to the devil. It's so easy to get so angry about other people's offenses and not angry about her own sin. Often our anger is born out of pride that believes somehow or other we were the ones that were treated unfairly. And the coals are burning within a spirit of resentment and this kind of anger often turns to hatred and resentment. Leonard Holt stands out as a classic example in my files of this. He was a middle-aged man working in a Pennsylvania paper mill. Leonard Holt was a fine, upstanding member of his community who had worked in that same paper mill for 19 years. In fact, he was the member of the local fire brigade. He taught the Boy Scouts and was indeed their favorite troop leader. He was an affectionate father and a regular churchgoer who even taught Sunday school. Everyone thought they knew Leonard Holt until one morning, Leonard Holt showed up at that same paper mill with two pistols, a 45 automatic and a Smith & Weston 38. He filled several of his fellow workmen with two and three bullets apiece, firing more than 30 shots in all, deliberately killing some of the men he had known for more than 15 years. When a posse was formed to capture Leonard Holt, They found him standing in the doorway, snarling defiantly, saying, come and get me, and he used some choice words, 
I'm not taking any more of your, and he used some more choice words. Total bewilderment swept the neighborhood. Puzzled policemen and friends finally discovered a tenuous chain of logic behind the brief reign of terror of Leonard Holt at that paper mill. The man who had appeared like a monk on the outside was seething with murderous hatred on the inside. A subsequent investigation led officials to numerous discoveries, yielding all kinds of evidence. Several of the victims had been promoted over him while he remained in the same position. More than that, his carpool that he had ridden to work for many years quit riding with him due to his reckless driving. A neighbor had then threatened him and then struck by Holt after an argument over a fallen tree that had fallen between their paths and they couldn't decide whose responsibility it was. The man was brimming with resentful anger. Eventually, Time magazine printed a front cover article about Leonard Holt. You know what they called it? Responsible, respectable, and resentful. That was the story of Leonard Holt. So it is with resent. Allowed to fester through neglect, the toxic fumes of hatred form to boil with a stream of, into the soul. Pressure mounts to a maddening magnitude, and by then it's only a matter of time. The damage is always tragic. It's always irreplaceable or irreparable. Soon we hear stories of a battered child in a home, a crime of passion, ugly caustic words are spewed, a loss of job, domestic disharmony and even abuse, a ruined testimony for Christ, and a church closes its doors. And none of this is new. Solomon described the problem long ago. Here's how Solomon put it in his book of Proverbs. Like an earthen-wise vessel, Overlaid with silver impurities are burning lips and a wicked heart. One who hates disguises it with his lips, but he abhors deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, do not believe him, because there are seven abominations in his heart. Through his hatred, though his hatred rather covers itself with deception, his wickedness will be revealed in the assembly. The answer to resentment is complicated. Rather, the, the problems of resentment can be complicated, but they will always be problematic. And the solution is rather simple. It requires honesty. You must first admit there's a problem, and it can start within your own heart. It requires humility. You must confess it before the one who died for such sins. It may even be necessary for you to make it right with those who you feel offended you, lest a root of bitterness spring up in your own heart. It requires vulnerability, a willingness to keep that tendency of being submissive only to God alone, a regular reproof, a genuine teachability, an unguarded attitude. Nobody ever dreamt that Leonard Holt had a problem with resentment, but he did, and it was explosive. Pretty words may hide a wicked heart. That's what Solomon was saying. But they will not be able to withstand the tide that washes out the usefulness of a local church if it's tolerated. You want to destroy a church? Tolerate that. I can hear the words of many a dead church's epitaph, which says something to the effect of great start, lousy finish. 
And normally it's because the longer you're around the same people, the more possibility of resenting those people. At the beginning, they're all your buddies and your friends. But allowed to push your buttons a little bit, now there's resentment. You want to destroy a church? Tolerate untruthful speech. Tolerate uncontrolled anger. Number three, don't tolerate an unchanged lifestyle. There are those who are in the church, as Paul writes to them in Ephesians, there are those in the church who are satisfied only with externalism. And Paul says this cannot be tolerated. That's what Paul is addressing as he says in verse 28. Let him that steal, or stole rather, steal no more. In other words, there were those whose lives at one point were marked by dishonesty and theft. The docks of Ephesus were notorious places for losing your wallets. And many of those people with sticky fingers were now in the Ephesus church. And Paul says, redeemed people aren't pickpockets, if you will. So he says in verse 17 or 27, This I say therefore, in testifying the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as the other Gentiles in the vanity of their mind. There's a change in your life. But now that you have learned Christ, and now that you are a Christian, your lifestyle should change. You have not, he says in verse 20, you have not so learned Christ. Is this not a challenge to us? You see, there, there, there is a lifestyle change. You are different than you were before. I probably needed to learn this when I first got married, that styles change. I, 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 I don't know if you're aware of that, gentlemen, but your wife should help you out with that. that styles do change, right? I still had, when we first got married, and I still wore them because they're comfortable shirts, I, I had polo shirts and button-up shirts and T-shirts that I literally had had since junior high. I really did. And I still wore them. They still fit. I can still wear them. I, I, I had jeans and things that, that I still had that, that I had literally since junior high. Uh, um, and they were, they were great clothes, right? And I, I remember my wife saying, you know, it is probably time uh, for you to go ahead and get some new shirts. And uh, maybe you as a husband have had wives that have done the same thing ever so graciously for you. Because the truth is, if someone ever says style is irrelevant, that's probably not true. Style is relevant because it, it does change. And the reason she was saying that is not only because I'm sure I could pull off a great junior high polo shirt, but because that's an old style and there's a new style. I bring that up because even so, in the lives of the church, there is an old style and there is a new style. And you shouldn't walk into church wearing your old styles anymore. So he says in verse 22, put off concerning... The former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. In some ways, it's probably not bad to come up with our own new Christianese this evening. If you see a brother or sister acting in a way that typifies an old lifestyle, you can just tell them to change their clothes, and hopefully they'll get their idea. And if they say the same thing to you, hopefully you know exactly what they're trying to do as an iron sharpening iron friend. I know the dramatic stories of churches that have fallen from usefulness, as you do as well. Many of these are dramatic as a result of gross immorality. Some are dramatic as a result of the pilfering of funds. 
Others are dramatic as a result of major ethical breaches, and there are many tragic stories like that. But it all really comes down to a toleration of a lack of change. When you give your life to Christ, things aren't supposed to be the same. Things I loved before are passed away. Things I love far more are come to stay, as one songwriter says. So you destroy these pitfalls, or these pitfalls will destroy you, and they will destroy this church. And warning number four, don't tolerate unwholesome speech. And this goes a step beyond just lying and untruthfulness. What he's saying is our very conversations ought to be guarded. We must marry the fellowship and potential usefulness of a local church to what we hear talked about through the very tongues of the members. Look at verse 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. It's not good enough to say, oops, I didn't mean that. No, it didn't. It's part of your heart. You let it out. In most cases, we thought about it and we said it. After all, Jesus would say in Luke 6, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You see, these people in Ephesus have been living in an impure environment, to say the least. Ephesus is not exactly the place that would have made the top ten safest, wholesome environments to raise a family. I've heard it said, well, you know, people, it's just so hard to raise kids in such a wicked world. Well, that's true, but i got to say, when we get to heaven, and if if they're talking about these kind of things, which I kind of suspect that they won't be, Ephesus certainly had a, a case to be made for one of the worst of the worst. Just horrible. And in a a mixed group with young children in here, it's probably not even wise for us to go into the details of how bad Ephesus was. And this pours itself out into the conversation and lifestyle of the community. And Paul is saying, that shouldn't happen in the church. In other words, you could probably walk your way down the marketplace to get wherever the meeting is gathered, And you are going to potentially have to guard your ears of your children and the ears of yourself, for that matter. But when you get into the assembly, it's not that way anymore. It's wholesome. It's pure. It's edifying. Now, for those of you like me who grew up in church, you may not get this in first reading. I've never been part of Hell's Angels. I've never sailed the seven seas. I've never been on the battlefield as a soldier. But you know that there are some of you that have had that experience, and you know the difference, the conversational difference between what you hear spoken of in the hallways of this church and what you hear spoken of in those kinds of groups. Do you think that when a person comes out of that lifestyle and crosses by God's immediate work of regeneration into the family of God, that immediately all of those words are just totally eliminated from their vocabulary? Of course not. And there's part of Christian experience. There's a growth there. There's a, there's a sanctification process. But we can't just say, don't say, you know, fill in the blank with some bad word. Say hallelujah instead, as if to treat the, the words of Christianity as some good replacement for bad things. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul exhorts them instead to work on the whole manner of their conversation. He's not targeting words. He's targeting conversation. Look what he says in verse 29. This is what you should do. 
It's not like you just say, well, all of those words, and maybe in your mind you're making up a list of conversational words that are bad, right? That you just won't, you can't even hear during the family hour on television. You say those words, you need to replace them with good, pure words. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the very manner of how you conduct yourself in conversation, this is how you do it. This is how you talk. But that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. These aren't pithy statements, are they? As if to replace one bad word with hallelujah. These are deep, theological, encouraging conversations. And the answer lies in prayerfully filling our hearts throughout the week with good and pure things from the Word of God. So that when we gather with brothers and sisters and they ask, how is your week? You say, well, I've been reading in God's word and then it just all spills out. This is what Philippians chapter 4 is all about in verse 8 when it says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue in them, if anything is praiseworthy in them, meditate on those things. Why? So when you can gather together with your corporate family... All of that is your conversation. What we begin to think about will become the basis of our speech. That's why we must be careful what we put into our minds. Trash in, trash out. Good in, good out. We need to take a 10-second pause before we speak and ask the question, is, that, is what I'm about to say going to build people up? Will what I'm about to say benefit those who listen to it? Or will it tear it down, them down? It's not insignificant that Paul addresses this and talks about our tongues. After all, the psalmist would actually take it so seriously that he would say in Psalm 39, verse 1, I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. Far too many churches are sunk by loose lips. Destroy that, or that will destroy you. And the final warning, warning number five, don't tolerate an unforgiving spirit. Forgiveness is a hallmark of our faith. And it should be a hallmark of the church as well. Notice here what it says in verse 32. Be ye kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. For many of us, the hardest words to say and really mean are, I forgive you. We all recognize that there are challenges involved in forgiveness. But the reflex and reaction of our lives is not to say, I forgive you. Let's cut through the nonsense and acknowledge that as long as we are going to live in this kind of proximity to one another, you can guarantee that the existence of being close to other people will, with its very existence, result in conflict. You will guarantee that. You and I will be offensive to one another. That will happen. We will be a disappointment to one another. We will discourage one another. We will let one another down. And you say, how can you say that with such confidence? Because none of us are perfect. Let's acknowledge that family is family. And sometimes brothers and sisters don't get along. My mom used to say, I would never have to deal with any disciplinary problems, it would seem, if you guys didn't have siblings. That's all the discipline stuff was about your siblings just not getting along. So the only way we can determine to have commitment in our hearts to one another 
is to learn the power of forgiveness. Indeed, we are forgiven by God so that we may forgive. One preacher rightly said, forgiven people forgive people. But how did he forgive? God forgave freely. There were no strings attached. And God forgave generously. And God forgave wholeheartedly. And God forgave eagerly. Bitterness and unforgiving spirits go hand in hand. And when I live with bitterness and a spirit of resentment that refuses to forgive, it's the prison house of my own making. It's self-inflicted torture. It's drinking poison thinking the other person will be hurt. Hebrews puts it this way, looking diligently lest any man fail by the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, is what it says. That's an individual cry. And thereby, many of these individuals are defiled. It would be a strange group if some of us at this point have never struggled with forgiveness. It would either be a strange group or a very small group or a very young group. (laughs) Perhaps you even have someone in your mind. But if you trace it back to the bottom line, you are realizing one thing. What's the bottom line that's causing me to have a hard time forgiving? And the bottom line is, I would rather be God than let God be God. This is what Paul would say in Romans when Paul would cry out to them and say that God is the God of vengeance. So let God be the God of vengeance. When I say I forgive you, does that mean that the consequences of harm wrong will not be brought about at the hand of God? Or when I say forgive you, am I communicating somehow that I forgive and forget? First of all, I've never heard forgive and forget actually preach from the pulpit, but I've heard plenty of people preach against that boogeyman. It is obviously not a biblical concept. God himself never promises to forget sin. Did you know that? What he does say is that he will take our sin and put them as far as the deepest parts of the ocean, places we still have not all the way gone to, and as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? Well, when I start going east, when do I start going west? Never. God can't forget. That's kind of a wrong theology to say God forgets sin. He's omniscient. That kind of doesn't go together. God doesn't forget. But God does forgive. And forgiveness is a recognition that God is in control of even the justice of mankind. And by the way, if we rely on the justice of humanity, it will fail us. As we've seen, even in the state of Florida, if you've been paying attention to the Parkland shooting, and you've seen the parents crying out and saying, we didn't get our justice. Yeah, if you're going to leave it in the hands of humans, once again, justice by means of mankind won't work. But I'll tell you a God who is always just. And that is our God that we serve. So tonight I feel almost like the man who stands on tops of the precipices of a lighthouse and just lights the candles up there. I'm not the source of the light, by the way. All I've done is allow the light to be turned on from Ephesians chapter 4 and allow it to spin around the lighthouse and to direct your attention to the rocks that it is pointing to. And there have been five of them. Don't tolerate untruthful speech. Don't tolerate uncontrolled anger. 
Don't tolerate an unchanged lifestyle. Don't tolerate unwholesome speech. And don't tolerate an unforgiving spirit. To tie you all into New England, because we're not there right now, New England is dotted with a lot of beautiful lighthouses. And they're really pretty to visit. You know what else it's dotted with? Beautiful but empty churches. At one point, Charles Spurgeon was actually asked to come preach in New England. Of course, from, New Eng- from England, not New England. And Charles Spurgeon traveled over to New England. He was there at the behest of some of the Whitfield brothers and others. And he traveled around and he preached and they had kind of a preaching meeting because at that point when he was invited, he was very well known. And he wrote in his book about his visit to New England and he said when he was there that what surprised him about New England is that he could go door to door and not find one solitary unconverted soul. That's how amazed he was. He went back to London thinking New England has all the saved people. Did you know today that Number 50 state per capita church attendance, number 50, is the state of Maine. Number 49 is the state of New Hampshire. Number 47 is the state of Vermont, and so on. It is the least churched area in our entire United States. And yet, one-third of the population of America lives within three hours of New York City. That's New England. What happened? There was some awesome potential. Study church history, and just about every revival sprung up from the New England states or neighboring states like New York. What happened? Awesome potential. Tragic end. And church history is littered with examples of churches that eventually amounted to very little for God, despite the fact that at one point in their history they had great potential significant giftedness, a clear delineation of purpose, a zealous desire to do their best. But they tolerated things. And you destroy these pitfalls, or these pitfalls will destroy the church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the example from Ephesians. Lord, may we be careful not to wag our heads and think that Faith Baptist Church of Palm Bay could never be prone to some of these dangers. Lord, these are very real, very clear dangers in the book of Ephesians in chapter 4 that are outlined for us. And Lord, may we check our own hearts that we do not have any of these ruminating about in our own lives. But may we be very careful to avoid these pitfalls, lest these pitfalls...